cliffcentral.com. Well, Brian Habana, I'm sorry it's taken so long for us to see you, but at least there's a good excuse now with our new digs. And, um, and having you up in Joburg is a rare thing. I know you, you're flying out straight after this because you can't wait to get back to Cape Town. But you have got reasons for that. I mean, family are down there. Yeah. And family is really important to you. Um, you mentioned your wife and your kids when we were talking a bit earlier. Um, how are they all doing? They're well, thanks, Gareth. I think it's great to be. I think we've done a few virtual things in yeah, the last yeah. two years. COVID, I think, has taken a lot away from us. I'm very much an in-person type of person, I think, as much as I believe yeah, me too. These virtual things are terrible. As much as I believe there's you know, ways of working around it and you don't have to fly as much, I just don't think there's something like the human connection. Um, so for me, that's why it's great to come up to Joburg, but then you know, to sort of put my boys to bed at night and you know, have a different environment. So they're well. Um, eight and four, turning nine and sure. five, getting big, uh, busy. Um, Do they look like you? They're actually a good blend between myself and Janine, to be honest. Um, they're really good blend. There's actually some of the, my baby photos... There's, I look like both. Because, both. I mean, I, the reason I ask is because you and your brother look quite similar. Yeah. And I've seen pictures of your dad, and mm. he looks similar. Yeah. So there's a strong gene there. There's a strong gene, but I'm going to be brutally honest. I'm not the prettiest guy around, <laughs> so I'm grateful that they got a lot of my wife's good looks. Yeah, and she's I'm not, very beautiful. And I'm not just saying that because I'm trying to score brownie points because I might not be at a home a lot this year. But um, no, they're a good mix, uh, both very fast. I mean, we haven't really like sort of put them up, but Timmy's dominating and um, you know, doing cricket, rugby, soccer, um, playing the piano uh, because that's his mom's side. Okay. Uh, the worst thing is I get asked by my four-year-old, Gabriel, um, and it's like this constant thing, oh, Dad, please can you draw this for me? And I'm like, dude. <laughs> Not your thing. That, that part, that gene pool, I wasn't going to. So you asked me to draw a rabbit the other day. <laughs> I mean, I've got, I literally have no artistic ability. Like, stick men figures are horrible. <laughs> so I draw this buddy that I think looks okay. And he looks at me, but he goes, that's not a... And he ran to Janine to ask her. And like, it was chalk and cheese. It was like a Picasso again. Did like, she even know what your drawing was? No, she... I mean, a rabbit's kind of... Draw a rabbit. No, no, I'm not going to draw a rabbit, no. <laughs> um, no, I'm not going to draw a rabbit. So we, we've got our split, but she's been amazing. I think, and as any professional athlete, your partner or your spouse has to sacrifice and offer up a lot for you to live out your dream. You know, I, we moved to Cape Town. I told Janine it's our forever home. And then two years later, I'm like, ah, oh, she's shot roots. France. France is on the horizon. So I think to all the partners, the spouses who normally live a very single track life because, you know, you, their partners are traveling, you conquering your own dreams, they're having to give up on their dreams, they, you know, filled with a lot of responsibility. So I'm very fortunate in that, you know, Janine is raising the boys. I think I've been traveling almost a lot more post yeah. my career than what I did while playing. So it's been interesting when you try, you know, continually support and, but to have that support structure. Um, while you're trying to provide is, is important. So grateful. Um, you know, 13 years in, yeah, we've known each other. It's amazing. 2002, we actually met each other for the first time. So more than 20 years. Um, Beautiful. Dated man. for five. So yeah, they're, they're all well. Um, school is busy, and I think in this environment where we're constantly striving and being busy, I think this but year. But also, I mean, you, you mentioned like how hard it is for for the partners of of sportsmen and of athletes, but. Also of people who are in the public eye, because there's always a part of you they have to share with everybody. And for a lot of wives and, and girlfriends and, and partners, this is a really tough part of it, because 
they're sharing you with the public mm. who all have opinions. They're sharing you with people they've never met. They're having to wait while you sign something at a dinner or whatever. And I know you never complain about it. You've always been, you know, people, people I promise you, people you, you don't know I know have said, this guy will stop whatever he's doing and have a picture with a kid <laughs> at the airport, even if he misses his plane. But it, it has to be tough, especially if you're out with the kids for a birthday or something. Yeah. And then someone comes up and they interrupt your family moment, which most people <laughs> never have to deal with. Most people never have to deal with that. And I think that's as much as it is, you know, there's many privileges that go with being in the limelight, you know, being a professional athlete, earning lots of money. Um, you almost don't have any privacy. And I think, unfortunately, social media has added fuel oh, to that wow. fire because all of a sudden you're now obliged to expose your private intimate environments to the rest of the world. And I've sort of taken a very different stance to that. And, and I mean, it's been tough for Janine. I told her she can't have a public Instagram profile. Um, you know, and well, because she, she's going to be sharing stuff that you have the experience not to share. Yeah. And she'll be thinking, oh, it's her friends and family, mm. but actually it's a whole bunch of strangers too. And not, some so, of them don't have the best intentions. Yeah, not, not at all. So, you know, she you know, befriended some of the, the you, Heisenberg people a while back. And like every time something happened in our lives, you know, they were, she was easy to contact because they were friends on Facebook. So uh, we sort of made a decision and it was tough because you could use that to your advantage. You could become an influencer. You could become a socialite and use the platform to you know, be advantageous in very other ways. You know, I try not to share photos of my kids on social yeah. media. Um, so there's a lot of things that we try to keep private. The difficulty, as you said, is when you go to a public environment, which you're making the decision to go to. I mean, we don't earn enough money to be having butlers and sending people to do our shopping. So you try and lead a normal life. And I do feel sorry for the kids because as much as you're just their dad, they see something very different in the public limelight. So you know, when you're walking in a shopping mall and I have to put them behind my back so that their face doesn't come in, and you're constantly holding them so tightly onto that hand because kidnapping is now a thing. So you know, you're trying to protect them. Nobody and- thinks about this stuff. And, and you don't want to think about it all the time because they'll mm. make you paranoid. And then your kids start getting that vibe yeah. and they start becoming nervous. Mm. But at the same time, if you don't think about these things at all, that's where really – Bad things can happen. Bad things can happen. And I think, again, social media is great and there's a lot of good things, yeah. a lot of bad things. I think the one thing is if you're going to make your life public, particularly your private life, and I've seen many cases in the past where people, you know, they put their families on billboards, on mm-hmm. television programs, all this, and it's great when it's going well. You know, but as soon as something bad happens, you know, then everyone's like, oh, no, but please afford me my privacy. Yeah. So the discrepancy can't have it, you can't have it both ways. The discrepancy is, you know, you've been living a public life um and you've been sharing intimate moments of you and your family and you know it's great when it's going well. So it's not easy. Do I believe there's a right and wrong? No. I think that you as a person decide how much you want to share, how much of your private space you want to let the whole world in into. It's it's not an easy task and each to their own. I think, you know, we've taken that decision. Janine's hated it at times because you know there's stuff that she could have potentially capitalized on potentially sure. from a marketing perspective or things that I've had said well it's our decision we're together in this um, I'll take the brunt for a lot of what has happened but it's not easy you try to protect them and I think the worst thing is about being a public figure is you're always wrong like yeah. if you don't greet so like yesterday a classic example I had my earphones in walk through security at Cape Town International um, you know, put them back in after collecting my bags and a guy said oh no you've just lost a fan I'm like what do you mean I've just lost a fan he goes oh no he said hello to you but you had your earphones in I'm like but 
because uh, that don't make me. <laughs> I wasn't ignoring you on purpose. I wasn't. No. I was just in my own zone, or in my own bubble. Now, am I rude for having earphones walking in a public space? I wouldn't think, I think so. I think if anyone else was, they wouldn't be able to call them rude. Yeah, but you, you're public property. So it's, it's a difficult one. I, again, I don't think there's a right and a wrong. Unfortunately, most of the times you're wrong when you lay down certain rules and boundaries because much like yourself, you know, you talk with people in their car, at their house every day of the week. So but they it, think they know you. But it used to be, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here. It used to be easier for sports people because they didn't ask you political questions in the old days. I'm talking like, when you were playing yeah. in the 2007 World Cup, mm. when you started in 2004, they didn't come at you with like, you know, um, what are your, what's your stance on, you know, gay rights in the Middle East? You, yeah. didn't, you didn't have to deal with that because mostly people knew this was your, your area. This is what people loved yeah. about you. This is what people watched. Now, of course, sports people have to be <laughs> diplomats. Yeah. You have to try to be as diplomatic as possible. And it's but tough. But also not having an opinion is also an opinion these days. Well, exactly. And if you, if you try and stay quiet about something, people like, think you're avoiding it. Yeah, you're avoiding it. So it's interesting. But you I mean, you talk about that. And I mean, I'll never forget the first time I ever took Janine's, so I met Janine's parents and we went away to the, the Vol River and her, her mom and the husband and her brother, you know, who was schizophrenic, um, and early stage that. So we sort of got, you know, hotel rooms, sat at the ball, and I phoned one of the local restaurants, a uh, massive food chain restaurant. Mm-hmm. And I was like, listen, it's Brian Banner. Um, do you mind if I could just book a rest- uh, table in the corner, like just private? Sorry, Mr. Banner, we don't do, um, you know, we don't do private bookings. It's a, I'm like, well, do you mind? Like, it's just, I know, when you come, we'll sort out something. Cool. So I think that was the first mistake I made because then we arrived there and they'd like sort of reserved a table in the middle of the restaurant. I'm like, oh man, this is the one thing I didn't want. And, um, so sort I of get there and what I did while I was, what I try to do while I'm eating, particularly when I'm with family and friends is like, just let me have my starters and my main meals. And as soon as dessert comes, I, I'll be free. But sure. if the one person bothers you at, while eating starters, it then happens for the whole meal. So I sort of, that's a boundary and it's my private time. And these two little boys came as we we're eating. Uh, our, our starters and I said, like, oh, I was like, guys, listen, just come back in like 15 minutes time. I'll sign. They were like, okay, cool, happy days. And I'm about to put my, I'll never forget, it was like a calamari in my mouth for my main <laughs> meal. And I get a tap on the shoulder. And I'm like, look at this guy, I'm like, can I help you? He goes, I want to talk to you. I'm like, sorry, sir, I'm just eating with my family. He goes, I don't care. And I'm like, um, sorry, but what do you want to talk No, How you treat those two young boys? I don't know who you think you are being so arrogant. I'm like... And he just starts spewing at me for like five minutes. The restaurant owner does nothing. Um, these parents that I'm now meeting for the first time have never engaged in this environment. The brother's schizophrenic. And he's like, I don't know who you think you are. You know, I've got Lance jersey, Lance Armstrong's yellow jersey from the Tour de France. And I'm thinking in my head, like, did you also bother him while he was at a meal? <laughs> and you can see this guy was not like the manier of, um, you know, the Val River. But you see also, you, I mean, I, I'm, I'm loving hearing this because I've, I've, I was never as famous as you. Oh, whatever. Interna- no, seriously, internationally. But if, if we talk about this with a lot of people, they're going to go, oh, look at these two guys complaining about how hard it is to be bothered by fans, which it does sound silly when you put mm. it that way. But like here you are, you're actually doing a whole lot of this not for you, mm. trying to look after your, your sister's yeah. brother. Yeah. I mean, your, 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 your wife's brother, 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 yeah. your future wife yeah. at that point's yeah. brother. You're, you're trying to look after other people and trying also to keep it together with mm. your own kids, like yeah. you said in the shopping uh, center. And it, 
it becomes like a bit of a game which you actually don't want to play. That's not what you got into this for. Mm-hmm. And then everybody thinks, well, there he is. He's mine now. I own him. I'm going to get what I need. Yeah. If it's a photograph or a, or a signature <laughs> or something. So a lot of this is also, it ties into the things you put your body through. Mm. And I mean, you, you quit after Toulon. Yeah. And you know, a, lot of, a lot of people said, well, you've still got a lot of, uh, of, of, of athlete left yeah. in you. You've got a lot of rugby left in you. But to make that call must have been very tough because we both know lots of people, you more than me, mm. who've really ruined their body. And rugby takes an enormous yeah. toll on the body. I mean, how, mm. how are you holding up now as you approach 40? <laughs> yeah, literally a couple of months away from 40. Um, I'm still a guy. I think so I had to retire. I'm, I, I was very fortunate for the greater part of my career that injuries were the last thing that actually kept me off the field. So for that, I'm very grateful. Um, I had to end because I don't have any meniscus left in my knees. I got bone and bone bruising, you know, tried various things to come back and just didn't work. What's the knees, eh? Um, well, there's a lot of things. Shoulders, knees, back, you know, yeah, necks. There's a the number of people have their yeah, knees. It's knees. just like so big... I've been horrible training-wise in the last four, five years since retiring, and I'll be brutally honest. Bit of a mental block, you know, trying to get into a different routine. Mm-hmm. I use it as an excuse a lot of the times because when you're a dad and a businessman, a woman and an entrepreneur and it's a 12 to 12 baby that you're carrying, you know, but, you but can't. It used to be something that you found very easy. It is. And, and like the, being physically fit and active yeah. was something so, that was so the almost like second nature, right? 100%. The difference is as a professional athlete, you're getting paid to be fit. Okay. Now all of a sudden there's a motivation. Have, there's a motivation for it. And you get paid. Automatic ext- one. You get paid extremely well. Yeah. You get to experience some phenomenal things. So, I think physically I was, you know, grateful, you know, for most of it. To your point, you know, the professional athlete environment is, in my opinion, and I say this with all due respect, is a very unrealistic reality that you live because not only do you get paid an incredible amount of money to do something you love, uh, you get to travel the world, see places, live a life that very few people get to live, and then you get paid better than the CEO of an organization. Mm. And uh, for me, a 15 to 20-year rugby or sporting CV correlates to absolutely zero in business because if you can't you know do a powerpoint presentation you know do a pivot table on an excel spreadsheet read a budget or forecast or maybe even do microsoft word you're so far behind the rest of the working world which and you're up against this preconceived notion that oh, he's just a rugby player he's just a rugby which i'm sure plagues a lot of guys and some of them who've done really well in business some of them phenomenally well in business um, i look at mine but then in the back of your mind you're always thinking that these other guys in the boardroom are just looking oh, Fucking dumb athlete. Mm, dumbass. Um, and they often, I mean, and someone like Bucky Sporta, for instance, for me, probably one of the most successfully transitioned players because he was involved in farming and things that he was absolutely passionate mm. about and loved, but got a great understanding. So when the whole, you know, wild game industry was booming, Bucky's had been in there for four or five years already. So, you know, the likes of a John Smith, a Farid Dupreer, uh, a Bob Skinstat, you know, there's some phenomenal athletes just from a South African context that have gone, you know, Francois Pino, you know, yeah. what happened in 95 phenomenal. and I was able to, you know, with F&B, with a Varsity Cup, do things that were exceptionally exquisite, was, was brilliant. So it is tough, you know, when you die a mini death, because that effectively what you actually do when you give up something you've only known for the last 10 to 15 years. And it's much like you're asking a practicing lawyer to say, listen, I want you to become a CFO and do an accounting yeah. degree. Like if they've not known any of that to now transition and then all of a sudden you have to start at the bottom of the food chain because being a professional athlete doesn't necessarily you know, get you an easy end. Yes, it might get you in the door, but if your value proposition is not adding bottom line revenue to whoever you're pitching to, 
getting your foot in the door is not good enough anymore. So there's a lot of these thinkings that one needs to start understanding when you transition. And I'm all for applying certain skills while you're playing to try and make that transition a little bit easier. But for me, I say balance was the last thing I had being a professional athlete because every waking minute of my day was solely focused on how I can become the best wing in the world. And yes, I had an off day on a Thursday, a travel day on a Sunday, you know, half day for captains on a Friday, but all that other time, you know, how what I was eating, what I was doing, how I was doing things was to become one of the best players in the world. And balance was absolutely skewed. Well, I mean, skewed. listen, you got there and, and I don't have to go through your CV, but, <laughs> but you also knew how to get there. Like you, you were aware of what you had to sacrifice, mm. how focused you had to be. And that kind of discipline mm. can translate to business, 100%. right? It definitely can. And I love telling people that being a professional athlete definitely has many transferable skills that can be come or allow you to become successful in the next world. Sure. You know, being diligent, being you know, hardworking, knowing how to sacrifice, knowing how to persevere, knowing how to pivot and adapt. There's a little bit of luck that gets thrown into the mix with being a professional athlete, which no one you know, can really determine what that means and how it comes about. Even though Gary Player says, the harder you work, the luckier you get. But my thing is that those transferable skills have to be aptly applied to the environment that you're working in. Otherwise, right. there's no correlation. And I take, you know, being in a masculine environment where we all thought the same, talked the same, spoke the same, now all of a sudden you're in an environment with a very multicultural, diverse Sure. Female, male contingent in an office, and I can't be speaking to the women. Can't that do I was, locker room talk there. You can't do locker mm-hmm. room talk. Um, um, I've had a th- uh, lots of times over the last three years with Pay Me Now, where you being a professional athlete, I removed emotion from decision making situations because I needed to make sure that what I was doing was the best for that moment, not the best for how I was feeling. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, you get into a check, a monthly check in or one on one. Uh, you know, with a colleague or an employee or someone who's a direct you yeah. know, contact, and you need to involve a little bit of emotion, even though you're trying to make the best decision for your business, but the locker room talk and how it just doesn't work. So, how those transferable skills are then appropriately applied for you to become successful is much more important to me than the pure, cold, transferable skill. So let's just talk about pay me now because this is something that in this country is particularly useful. I mean, we, we have people who earn monthly salaries who really should be earning on a daily or weekly basis yeah. and only get paid at the end of the month. That's hugely to the benefit of the company yeah. and to no one else. It is. So firstly, earned wage access, you know, the tech platform that pay me now does, we can't own it, we can't claim it. It's sort of been this No, there are lots phenomenon. of businesses doing this. There's, but there's a global phenomenon that actually started in the U.S., you know, yeah. back in the, the late 2010, 2011 period, um, went to the U.K., you know, other developed market economies. And, you know, my CEO was my uni- university roommate, nine, 20 years approaching with the concept. And, you know, I was initially also very, I was like, no, dude, it sounds like beta lending, sounds like loan shocking, like it's irresponsible. And we actually did some exploration around, to your point, a monthly salary process is just very easily run by an employer. And, and it doesn't even make sense for like high salary net, you know, sort of executive mm-hmm. C-suite type people because, frankly, it's still to the benefit of the company. Yeah. I mean, I was talking to Vinnie Lingham yeah. the other day about this, and he said we should pay people twice a month yeah. 
half their salary here and half mm. their salary there. It'll already help with cash, cash flow. flow It'll stimulate the economy in different ways. There are companies so, already doing it. So there are companies. And I think that the biggest thing that I learned is that, you know, how do we, with a monthly sort of monetary forecast or understanding, then as C-suite level executives who fill their car up with petrol, drive around for a week or two, you know, have mortgages or car repayments, have monthly cell phone contracts. When you're in that line of thinking, and if I was to give you 20 rand on your credit card that you had to you know, tap the, the petrol pump in the morning, and then 20 rand to tap the petrol pump, and you physically need that. For me, I've got no comprehension of what that disconnect of a monthly salary you know, for those living on a day-to-day basis is like. I've yeah. absolutely zero. So for me as a C-suite level executive to now start saying, I want to look after my staff, I don't want my staff to get into a worse of situation, you're actually putting them in a worse of situation. And then they go to Mashanisas. Mashanisas or loan sharks. And it becomes, and again, we'll be brutally transparent and honest, we are without a doubt not the holistic one-stop solution. You know, We need to form a part of a greater holistic environment that the employer then offers its employees for the employee value proposition because mm. the financial wellness plays a component, but so does the, the mental wellness, so does the physical aspect mm. of that, and how that all integrates holistically to look at your entire you know, holistic wellness proposal for your end user being your employees is much more important. So it's been phenomenal. I think, you know, we've had we've got over 200,000 with access to the, plat- you know, the platform Amazing. now. Sign on the likes of THD, Bidvest Services, you know, the smaller groups of the world. Um, had month-on-month growth, uh, you know, for the last three years. Got an incredible, you know, angel investor who's been with us from the beginning, understood, understood the principle, looking to go into various African geographies in the next while. And interesting, I mean, like fintech is still one of the sexiest areas of economic development yeah. and where all the cool businesses are. So it's fun to have a foot in that camp as well. It's extremely fun to, and, and it's been a massive learning curve for me. I mean, literally being able to, again, I don't understand our tech and our C-sharp and move over to Flutter and, you know, the various backend parameters that are. I mean, you know, I, I still don't know how payroll, thank God I've got Reno now. <laughs> I, I wouldn't know how that stuff works. Um, but yeah, but, well, payroll is easy. It's the tech that creates the payroll. That's a lot, a lot more complicated. But I think, just around understanding the growth of business. Fintech, it's, it's a buzzword that for me is sometimes you need to be, excuse me, wary of because where I see Fintech to be, you know, really cool, really disruptive is the fact that they offer a very niche service-based delivery that your big institutions can't. So mm. a bank can't be everything to everyone. And so if, and we almost give our end users, the employees, better Service than what my private banker that I pay a hell of a lot of money for gives me. I'm paying money, and these guys at the touch of a button can actually get access to support, asking you know what's the money, how does it work, and and all that on a daily basis. So yeah. a very niche offering that is incredibly well serviced, which you know your big financial institutions, the big beasts of the world, they just wanting growth on various scales, and um, and they can't do that very. I want to say authentic, emotionally connected service delivery because they're just worrying about too, too many things. So it has been phenomenal. We've gone from four guys in an office, I think a third of this size, to 30 full-time staff now um, going into That's going amazing. into Africa. And extremely proud. And I, I almost want to say like the 
the cool thing about being in, I think the financial fintech bubble probably burst two years ago where the valuations you were seeing were just ridiculous, you know, with no real bottom line, cheap, you know, gross profit happening. So it has been phenomenal for me to learn in terms of, you know, how do you scale a business? How do you put appropriate policies and procedures in place? Because we were on WhatsApp communication. Now all of a sudden you've got to go to a CRM, you know, in platform environment to document because if something happens to one of your employees, what is the business continuity going to be like? So if that yeah. person has kept everyone on everything on their hard drive or on their laptop and something happens to that. So learning things about you know, and business. And I think, don't you think a lot of companies also learned some very hard lessons during lockdown, huh? I think a lot of companies learned a lot about, for those that did well, they learned why they were being successful. They created a culture. They created an environment of business continuity, business growth. They, you know, they weren't keeping all their IP you know, close to their chests. You know, they, people were involved. People felt valued. Um, I'm all for, you know, teams and virtual meetings, but that environment where people have created a culture where employees feel valued because at the end of the day and I made the mistake in my first week <laughs> you know I had a business executive join a sales executive join my department and you know for me as a business owner I'm thinking about the business 12 to 12 and I like I sent her a message you know the, the one night about seven or opposite eight or whatever time after business hours came in the next morning and I'm like listen um, did you get my message last night she goes well she's got a Thing with her partner where after seven at night they don't look at their phones and like I'm like my CEO says oh that's pretty ballsy to tell your your boss and I had to then realize not everyone thinks like I think you know my employees need to feel valued in a different environment because for them it's an eight to five role you try and make it a thing they feel a part of you create give them a why like Simon's neck says yeah but at the end of it, you're the owner and you're putting process. So it's, it's a very different environment. It's very cool. It's so fast paced, so, so fluid, so volatile, to be honest as well. You've know, seen some massive fintechs fold in the space of a couple of months because valuations didn't happen. You know, the perceived perception well, of I mean, a lot of it is also just smoke and mirrors, huh? I mean, you see some of these big Silicon Valley fintech companies and they, they tell you how much they're doing and where they're going, mm. investments pouring in and this, but they can't actually show you a good business case. And when you mm. dig down deep enough, some of them are really messing around. Some of them, but let's take Uber as a classic example. No. Uber do more than a million rides a day globally. <laughs> it took Uber more than 10 years to become profitable. Yeah. People think it's, it's overnight success. You know, people think it just happens. And it is this huge bubble, this huge void that again gets filled with noise that we've sort of come across that people talk about certain things, but it has been cool. Um, again, where are we have going? You, have you had people, um, come up to you and, and ask you, this is something that happens with, with people in your position mm-hmm. where you've had this amazing first chapter of your life with sport and everything else. And then they want you to mentor them. Yeah. Um, and especially when they find out that you're in business. Mm. I mean, what do you, first of all, what do you think those people are really after? Because with you, a lot of the time just being around Brian Habana is yeah. what they're after. But also, mentoring is, is, is not for everybody. Like, I think I'd be a terrible mentor because I, I don't want someone following me around all day asking me questions. I think I, they'll probably get in the way. I'll get annoyed. <laughs> it's not going to help them. It's not going to help me. No. You don't have a lot of space in your life for that kind of thing, too. Do you do you take on that sort of responsibility? So I've uh, definitely got to a point, and that's probably one of my goals for 2023, is just prioritization because I think you almost allow yourself to do too much, to be too much to everyone. Spread too thin. Spread too thin. And I got to a point last year where I was just spread too thin, and I was, again, I'm fortunate that, Again, I can do ambassadorial roles with, you know, Marcus.com, HSBC, MasterCard, Land Rover, you know, do broadcasting work and my Pay Me Nine environment and my 
shareholders because we're now responsible to share. I'm a minority shareholder in the company, so we're now responsible and accountable to a greater shareholding group that looks at our bottom line, looks at our you know our revenue and where we're going. And um, to your point, you know, what is being a mentor? I think it's a, being a diff- Am I being a mentor to my kids? Firstly, because I think sure. that's, that's that's really number important. One, right? Um, but you also then get people that just want to. And again, I'm not a success in fintech. You know, I'm a part of a successful fintech. You know, I'm not quite where someone like you know Vusi Timberquire is because mm-hmm. you know he's seven, eight years younger than me. You know, already a self-made millionaire on, on a greater scale. And there's other phenomenal you know, leaders within the fintech environment. So. Do I see myself as a leader? I mean, I'd love to mentor and, you know, through the Brian Abana Foundation, allow you know, young kids from the rural townships to potentially understand the impact that they can have. And mentorship for me is not always about one specific person who needs something. It's about the legacy that you leave on which people can continue building on. Because mentorship, I think, is only as good as the person that's being mentored. Because, you know, what are they learning from that to make this world a better place? That's a good answer. Um, which I think is really important. So, I'm probably okay at it. Um, I'm a I'm a very people's person, so I'm not like you. Yeah, I don't mind people in my space. My wife minds people in our space, so I just have to be very careful with who we allow in our space, Mr. Cliff. Um, have you made any really stupid investments? And have Definitely. you have you done any really really dumb things? Especially since you finished, because you joked once in an interview, uh, like buying your, yeah. your your clothes for yourself, no, I'm so which you never thought about before. No, you right? don't as an athlete and. Coming out of that world where you have someone to keep you on schedule, someone who briefs you before a yeah. press conference, someone who uh, helps you figure out when you've got to do this and that public relations yeah. event or whatever, mm. and suddenly you find yourself, okay, I'm finished with rugby, and then everything you're on your own for, not just sport. So I was very much, while I was playing the game, very adamant that I need to keep control over various aspects of my life. So like flight bookings, I'd always done my own flight bookings because it was just important for me to understand should that need to happen one day, that I know how to do it, that I don't have to wait for a team manager or a liaison officer or an ops manager to book that. Um, you talk about the clothes, you know, as a professional athlete, I can't go to work in shorts and slops, no. like, or tracks of pants. No, you're it's, that. Unless you're working for Google where, you know, that's sort of acceptable. <laughs> but if you're in an, and for me in a professional environment, you have to dress appropriately. And what does a new wardrobe cost? 20 to 30,000 Rand as an athlete. Have you budgeted for that? Have you even thought about no, that? Yeah, think about it. Adidas is no longer giving you shoes or, you know, sure. you're having to buy anything. We've got to so. talk about, just remind yeah. me to come back to this <laughs> okay. shoes cool. thing. That's but, a, um, no, let's not do the shoes no, thing. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I want to I go there because I've got the same problem um, you have. But, uh, to your point, like, you need to not everyone. So I've tried and have I made, I've made some of the worst decisions financially. And one of the biggest ones was in the year I retired, I had an approach from someone around a, you know, fast food, you know, chain restaurant environment oh. that they wanted to use as a, as a great opportunity for particularly rugby players to sort of get involved in, understand what it is like to work in a corporate environment, you know, train people, lead people, manage people, investment. And I lost a lot of money. I, mm. I, and I look back now and I was like, I was just very much into... I didn't do my correct due diligence. I didn't look, you know, what were the appropriate structures. I didn't look at and the And they probably numbers. made it sound too good to be true. They, oh, but they always do. But the, And everything's always going to sound too good to be true until you get down to the depths of detail. And I was very much succumbed because, firstly, I hadn't educated myself on properly looking at budgets. So I didn't look at, you know, what their last you know, financial, you know, financial statement was. I didn't look into the various legal specificities of specifications of what it was all about. So... 
literally four years ago, made one of the worst investments um, ever that lost a lot of money. And I look now and I'm like, that could have literally been a nest egg for my kids that would have put them through school, university, and a whole lot of other things. So Jeez, I'm not saying that. school fees, huh? I've paid some bad school fees and a lot through life. You know, stuff that happened with my dad and, and a lot of things that because you – and that's the thing about being an athlete. If you don't know everything – or if you don't give yourself an opportunity, just get to know the basics or understand whether you're an athlete or if you don't know and you're putting your full trust and ownership in someone else managing whatever that subject is, you're going to come off second best um, because you can't blame them if they've sure. made a mistake. So, yes, I'll put my hand up right in front of the queue. Made some <laughs> horrible investments um, and, again, have made some great investments, you know. Not saying, but crypto six, seven years ago when you got in initially, you know, there's been a lot of things that are but very did different. Did you sell at the right time? I did not sell at the right time, unfortunately, <laughs> Mr. Cliff. Let's not get into that. But there, right. there are some things. So <laughs> you, you brought up the shoes. So I mean, being sponsored by Adidas is cool because I, I'm a, an addict, a mm. sneaker addict. So I have, I mean, I, I don't have that many at the moment, but I have gone through stages in my life where I'd be buying like three or four pairs at a time. And then I wouldn't want to wear them because they look so nice before you put mm. them on. And the first time you get a mark on them, oh, you're like, oh. Especially the white ones. It kills me. Exactly. It kills me. But, but I mean, at its, at its height, because I'm sure that there was a time where they were throwing these things at you every week. And then there are probably times where they're not, and then they'll start yeah. again or whatever. And, I mean, you've had a good relationship with these guys yeah. for a long time. How, did you get addicted to sneakers? Like some of the people I've spoken to, we've even done features on this show about people who collect <laughs> things, right? We've tried to disguise addiction <laughs> as collection. I had an addiction. I don't think I'm addicted anymore, but have you been addicted? Yeah. No, I was 110% addicted. Um, so badly. I'm like, so <laughs> we've actually just renovated a certain room at our house um, <laughs> where we've had to put in a shoe wall. Okay. Um, and so myself, between myself and Janine, we've got a fair amount of shoes and. She's also got this problem. No, she doesn't have the problem, but I then, <laughs> I made myself feel less bad by potentially buying myself a pair of Yeezy and then also buying her one. Oh, okay. Um, so you used her as no, kind of I a... use, well, I didn't use her. I just, <laughs> I made, <laughs> I made my addiction feel less worse for me by <laughs> adding on. So I eventually, I'm starting to pack and I've had shoes in boxes. I think for about eight, nine years now. Um, and I sort of start back in the wall and I get to my half completed and I sort of look down and I've still got quite a few. Oh man. And Janine's like, no, no, you can use some of mine. Um, and I finished that row and there's still about another. <laughs> no, so I was, and to your point, Adidas was, you know, so incredible in giving me, you know, a lot, but I got addicted and I started buying, like literally, I started buying Adidas at full retail store value um, and yeah. I look now at the money I spent and look, look, that I've I mean, never worn <laughs> no, but, the, but then keep them because they could still go up in value I mean there's a whole market the on easy, this yeah, easy, we talk about markets.com yeah. and trading there are people who have entire trading platforms just, just for, for sneakers, sneakers. No, so, and mine's unfortunately only Adidas one of the worst things I did was um, <laughs> pre-2015 the Kanye West Yeezy crisis just happened and I'm like, no. And I phone Adidas. Adidas can't help me out. And I'm like, oh, in the UK. They couldn't help you out. The rest no, of us were screwed. No. So I'm like all over getting eBay. So I buy this pair on eBay that like trying to go through. Oh, is it a fake? Is it a replica? No, it's everything. And I get this pair of fake Yeezys. Oh, boy. Hong Kong. That I paid 300 pounds for. Yeah. 80 pounds above store value. Oh. And they were fake. 
See? The, even I mean, I even, made another mistake doing even it again. Brian Habana gets ripped off. For no. anybody who's listening yeah, now. Yeah. So, but yeah, I, I, I have curbed the addiction. I must say, it, only, it took me about two years after rugby because I just couldn't appropriately <laughs> validate spending that much money on shoes. Um, no, no. But yeah, so I've, I've got shoes in boxes still and I've got a full wall that... Yeah, so yeah, thank to Adidas, thank you for all the shoes that you did give me. <laughs> I'm very disappointed in the addiction that you created for me though. So, I mean what's what kind of stuff with, with a family do you get to do that's that's fun? Do you guys go on holidays? What sort of holidays are you into? I look at my, my brother and his kids mm. and they're about the same age as your boys yeah. and also two boys. They love going to the beach and they love yeah. going to camp and they do all kinds of cool stuff mm. like that. Which I mean, if I think about it, they've probably done more traveling. The eldest is now nine. Yeah. And he's probably done more traveling than I did at the age of 22, and he's only nine. No, it's crazy. There's a lot of privilege that professional sports allows you, and traveling was unbelievable. And being based in Europe was fantastic. Oh, wow. Timmy, you know, within the first... So Timmy was born 2014... At eight weeks, he took his first trip to Australia um, sure. to Perth to watch me play my 100th test match. I think by, by six months old, he'd been to eight different countries um, at eight years old. And you know, Gabriel was no different. Uh, we came back to South Africa end of 2018, 2019, we went to Australia, Fiji. Um, I think Your kids have got miles. No, they do have miles, which I've now put into the family bundle, so they're effectively <laughs> my miles. Mr. Cliff. Good, um, good, good. But, yeah, I think spending time away from the... The public eye. So, unfortunately, that does mean being outside of South Africa quite a bit. Um, one of the the best holidays I ever had was two years ago in the Maldives. Oof, um, nice. It was just phenomenal. Like no one really knew me there. The boys, like it was beachfront property. Your swing pool, the sand, the beach. Mm. Um, yeah, it's there paradise. Was a, there was a, it, it really is for those. Did, but did, it's very. And it was the first time we had to travel economy class. Did Timothy pick up any French? He was actually a little Frenchy, to be honest. So really? he got born 2014 in South Africa. Then we all went back, and he literally had a. Like we'd come home, and he'd be speaking French to the French nanny. Amazing. And like, and we'd be like, but he doesn't talk French to us. And then he he still got this one friend who, in his mindset, is his BFF. They were like these three like little benders. We we called them the three little benders at at his crash. <laughs> but fluent, 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 fluent. Um, and then came back to South Africa, and schooling wise. We sort of came back middle of the year. There wasn't anything putting him in Afrikaans school, which was effectively his third language. Hated it for two two I'm weeks, sure. and then started loving it, and then totally forgot his French. Where one day, so then I tried to keep a little bit of it. I'd read like French books for him at night, and like the one night he just looked at me, and goes, "Daddy, why are you speaking to me funny?" Oh wow! And he literally like in like three four months I'd forgotten. But he, it is something I'd love him to pick up at a point. Um, it was a great cultural experience for us, and we've got some. Incredible friends still there, but he was a little Frenchy, to be honest. Like, Gabriel was a couple of months old when we moved back, so he's no, no recollection of even being there. Um, so World Cup coming up, which we spoke yep. about at the beginning of this conversation, and, you know, even for those people who are not like ardent rugby fans, like, I'm, I can't bullshit you. You can tell straight away that I'm not the kind of guy who's watching <laughs> rugby every weekend. So you're not going to know who's Afri- the tight head with loose head. No, no, I don't even know what that means. Um, but, I think South Africans treat rugby as a religion. Yeah. There is nothing more serious to some adult men in this country than 
No, than the score of their, their favorite rugby team. Yeah, and their whole weekend depends on it. I've seen. The economy of South Africa sometimes I've, depends it on it. It does. It does. It actually affects it. You can mm. see by spending and drinking yeah. and everything else, yeah, yeah. it goes 100%. up and down. But also, I mean, I've met women who are in tears because their husband's a complete disaster after the Springboks have lost. <laughs> and this stuff happens, so it really <laughs> matters. True. Are we going to be all right this year, or do, do uh, wives have to take out insurance? <laughs> <laughs> I think from a South African perspective, I'd love, you know, our Springboks to go on and create history by winning back-to-back World Cups in France. It's going to be the toughest route to the final to actually win it that they've ever experienced since. You, you mentioned this earlier, yeah. and, and you said it's because their teams like Ireland France, were right New there Zealand, at the start. No, yeah, 100%. So, like, it's, it's, going to, it's going to be tough. I'm, I'm extremely, I want to say, positive and confident about the actual game playing abilities that I saw at the end of last year going into this World Cup year. And I mean, there's been moments. I go back to 2006. We got beaten 49-0 by Australia in Brisbane a year out from a World Cup. Mm-hmm. And then a year later, go on and win it was phenomenal. This current crop lost the first game against New Zealand at, you know, at the World Cup in Japan 2019. Went on to become phenomenal throughout that tournament. So I, if you don't go into this World Cup with confidence, I think you're going to be doubting not only this own team and their ability, I think we've got some fantastic youngsters coming through. I think the coaching staff has opened up a wide net of players that have tasted international rugby and know what it is to lose mm. because that then spurs them on to want to hopefully win. France, for me, is a special place, and I would, it would be really cool seeing this from oh, wow. once do something. Yeah, yeah I, did, I haven't even thought about that. But which it is, be. It's not going to be Japan. For me, and I, I say this, again, with all due respect to 07, 95, the Springboks winning the, 90, the 2019 Rugby World Cup was literally the cherry on the cake. But having experienced World Cups, that Japanese World Cup was by far the most phenomenal experience. The Japanese as a culture. I mean, I was watching... Boku. I, was, I was literally watching the South Africa All Black <laughs> game with Dan Carter in a box. And we had this Japanese couple in front of us. The wife wearing a Springbok jersey and the husband wearing an All Black jersey. Oh, wow. They both sang both national anthems. And as everyone was then leaving, every, the Japanese people were picking up the dirt and I everything that. in the state. It was, the, and they what, what, the what do you like to watch rugby with? Are you screaming and shouting and jumping up and down, or are <laughs> no, you just so chill? In, in my own environment, I will. And I actually went to watch the <laughs> the DHL Stormers play against um, a, a team recently, and I was in the DHL box, and I was with the boys, and they were loving it. Obviously, the cheerleaders and dancers and all the yeah. fireworks and everything. And I had this guy, and like, obviously I'm not going to say anything, but I had this guy behind me who was literally commentating on every bit of play. And I'm like <sighs> listening to what he's saying. And like, I'm like, you are just so not understanding the game of rugby in any. <laughs> and like, there was a substitution. There was another kicker that had come on. Oh, no, no, that, um, no, no, that, that, that's, um, Kate Volatek. That's Kate. It was, it was not Kate Volatek. It was, it was, it was Duplessis that come on. And I'm like just sitting there like five minutes. So, when I'm in my own environment, I'm very boisterous and I'll be shouting at the TV. But I think in the public environment, I just tend to take a step back. Um, and I've, I've, I've really mellowed out now. I think I'm very passionate. So watching the 2019 World Cup final, sitting between Sir Clive Woodward, Sir Johnny Wilkinson and Brian O'Driscoll, I was like a kid wow. in a candy store. Oh, my goodness. Uh, so when Cheson scored that try, I was jumping off my ch- – I was literally going bonkers. So in that environment, I felt it pretty ep to – App to do exactly what I want, but yeah, I'm a pretty mellow one, um, and I love sports. So you know, tennis. Seeing what Novak Djokovic did recently was <laughs> phenomenal. So, yeah, wasn't that great? No, unbelievable for a guy who'd been castracized in so many yeah, ways. Sent so, out and told he couldn't come and play, and you know, he won. Brilliant. He won. Unbelievable. He won on two fronts. 
It was brilliant. So, so let me ask you this too, because there is there is a component to legacy which yeah. enters everybody's thoughts every now and then. And of, of course, your time and place in South African rugby will forever go down in history, not only for your own personal achievements, but because of what you represented and who you were at that time. And that's no small thing. I mean, do you ever feel this over, overwhelming sense of responsibility, like you have to, you know, like they always said Barack Obama when he became <laughs> first president of the United yeah. States, the first black president mm. of the United States, that he had to do more than just be competent and even brilliant. He yeah. had to excel in ways that all the previous presidents hadn't because he was yeah. carrying all these people yeah. with him. And the symbolism of that was so big. I'm going to be brutally frank. I don't. And the reason I say that is I was born in the apartheid era, but I'd never had an underprivileged upbringing. Like, I got given the best opportunities to succeed. Like, I went to the best schools, like, and I've said this but many just times. saying that is a big deal because these days there are a lot of people who like to play on a narrative. Yeah. And I mean, God. you could say, oh, well, I was bullied at school. Or you could come up with something. Yeah, but I wasn't. And you, you, could, you, could have, you could very easily craft that kind of narrative yeah. for yourself. It's to your credit that you don't, I, if no, you I ask can. me. Like, yes, were there racist remarks on our rugby field? There probably were. And did it like, so my biggest thing growing up, and I think 95 was a, was a classic example for me. I, you know, I looked at... And I was fortunate. My dad took me out of school the first time I ever drove down to Cape Town, you know, Newlands to watch the opening game with the Springbok. And I didn't understand rugby and Nelson Mandela and apartheid. I was 12 years old. I mean, what do you understand about the world at 12 years old? But I got to experience the coming together of people from various backgrounds. And I, I was unfiltered in, like, my dad had me, had, like, I had white friends and black friends mm. and colored friends and Indian friends, pink, blue. So color was never an issue. My dad and my mom made us realize as kids, the battles and struggles they had to go through, you know, to give us the opportunities that we were being given. Um, and did I have to stand up to a few things? Yes, I did. But I was never going to let people steal my joy. And I think everyone says, oh, but when I meet people of color, like, oh, you mean you're such an inspiration. And I look like, well, am I not a South African? And I think sometimes we've, yes, there is a past and we can't deny that. But sure. I have, I do not have a story like Sia Khaleesi. I don't, like, I was worried about what boots I'm gonna wear or like what car my dad's gonna come pick me up in. I wasn't going to school worrying about where my next meal is coming from. Mm. So for me to say, like, I'm this person of color that, you know, struggled and I grew up in the apartheid era, I, I can't say that and I need to be frank and I see myself as South African more than anything else and I think we always categorize according to the color of your skin and and you talk about a legacy, you know, as a legacy, how as a South African are we leaving this environment in a better place? And I think that was incredibly important for me because, yes, I was maybe only, you know, one of two players of color in the 2007 Rugby World Cup final, but I wasn't thinking of it like that. I was thinking about how could I, as a South African, you know, contribute to this team, galvanizing not only what we were doing, but galvanizing a nation, you know, being in France. And, and, and there's nothing that beats, you know, nastiness and prejudice like victory and results is there yeah. I mean that's just like that is unassailable and then again I, you know people say like Yo, it's because of what happened the fights and you know those that stood up for the injustices of apartheid that allowed me to do what I was doing and I understand that sure. but my work rate my effort my sacrifice my commitment played a bigger part in you know, me playing 124 test matches for my country. And you were never, ever um, 
You were, you were never evaluated on the basis of being person of color X, Y, and Z. You were evaluated as being Brian. You'd, you'd hope so. I mean, there were no. times where my form was potentially poor, where people would say, okay, well, it's because he's a player of color. And I'd be like, well, <laughs> if, you've, if you become a World Rugby Player of the Year, it probably isn't. But that being said, and I say, like, everyone was like, who's the best coach you played under? I'm like, well, that's a very subjective term because... With that subjectivity, in my opinion, comes a lot of luck and support. So sure. if Jake White hadn't you know, selected me out of obscurity, if in Eugene Eloff, Lofi Eloff hadn't moved me to center, you know, hadn't, Peter de Villiers hadn't selected me when my form was bad, you know, Alistair could see it down in the Stormers, like, I would not have had the journey if it wasn't for each and everyone on that, you know, on that road that helped me and selected me to be there. So, um, yeah, how do I see things? Hopefully as a South African, and I think as a South African, there's a lot more power in Galvanizing and bringing people together if we're all of a sudden rudimentally immediately putting people in, bo- in boxes yeah. with how we say what color, what gender, what. So sure. as a South African, I'm exceptionally proud to have represented my country, you know, as many times as I did. Um, and I hopefully did it in a way that inspired not just people of color, you know, it inspired young everyone. kids. Yeah. That everyone didn't have so yeah i was extremely grateful for the life that rugby gave me extremely grateful for the support structure i had within that to to do what i did you know for every successful person man woman whoever you're from you can't do it on your, even like i take novak Djokovic. like he's he's a brilliant and probably one of the greatest of all time equaling the record but he's got a support team you know he's got mm-hmm. his family he's got his wife he's got his training team he's got his coach he's got his physio he's even him as an individual athlete is doing something phenomenal. So within a team context, and I'm grateful that I had an incredible team supporting me. Um, I hopefully lived up to the standards and values that were instilled in me as, as a child of, of humility, of respect, and in so doing, you know, inspire people to be better, to leave this world in a better place. Because I think that's sort of an environment where you know, everyone's in it for themselves at the moment. Um, and I'm all for that. You know, be driven, you know, be motivated, you know, be determined to be successful. But are you leaving this world in a better place in every engagement that you're making, whether it be with a janitor that's cleaning the toilet or the CEO of a company that you're meeting? Are you leaving them feeling better about the role they're playing in this very volatile, you know, unfortunate world we live in sometimes? Well, you're doing that. You really are. You live, uh, you live exactly what you just said. And that's why it's always a pleasure to see you and to hear what's going on in your life and in your brain and in your world. And uh, I can only wish you the best of luck. I hope we're going to have an amazing year of, of rugby. That. I hope you're going to have an amazing year of business and mm. time with your family and all the other good stuff and rugby. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's win this World Cup. Prioritization. Brian, Anything. it's so nice to see you. Thank you, Thanks, my friend. Good to Thank be you. Here.